A converted Boeing 747-400 cargo plane is carrying heavy military cargo from Afghanistan. What causes this plane to fall from the sky? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. I'm Christy. And I'm Emily again. Again! We again. have a guest! After so long! And thank you to Brian Doan for recommending this episode. We had to have Emily come in because I actually know this episode, so... Yeah. It's a little bit different today. Yay! Yeah, so we're going to flip everything upside down on you, which is why I get to say this phrase. Miranda, what are we covering today? Oh, hey! <laughs> <laughs> That's usually my line. I okay. know. <laughs> uh, today we're covering National Airlines Flight 102. And let me just get right into it. This incident happened on April 29, 2013, so not that long ago. Seven years ago. Yeah. Actually, not too far from the actual date, which is kind of from when we were recording. Yeah, yeah. Way. And it occurred at Bagram Airfield in northeastern Afghanistan. The plane was Boeing 747 that was converted into a cargo plane, so it didn't have any seats in it whatsoever. It had the cockpit, the three seats in the cockpit. I don't know if there was any seating, because there were people in the cargo area. There was seating for a backup crew. Okay, so there was a little bit of seating in the cargo area, which is usually where passengers sit, but everything else is open so that they can carry cargo. It was carrying U.S. military cargo, and when we get into the story, it's sitting, waiting to take off from Bagram Airfield, where it had arrived at 1.53 p.m. local time. The crew was all-American. The captain was Brad Hassler. He was 34 years old. He had a total of 6,000 hours of flying time. 4,700 of those hours were pilot in command, and only 440 were on the airplane type. The first officer was Jamie Brakow. He was 33 years old. He had 1,100 hours of total flying time, 451 hours of pilot in command, and 209 hours of second in command on the type. Then, in the jump seat in the cockpit was Augment Captain Jerry Lipka. He was in the jump seat. And Loadmaster Michael Sheets was one of the people in the back. He was 36 years old, and he had no previous experience with National Airlines or heavy MRAP vehicle cargo that will become important later. There were also two mechanics and an augment first officer in the cargo area, which we were that's why we were discussing the seating earlier, is because there was enough for those four people in the back to sit down. Wait, was the Loadmaster on board? Yes. Mm -hmm. oh. And the crew was... They were civilians, so they, they weren't military. They were contracted by the U.S. Department of Defense to do this cargo flight. And then just a, a quick note, Bagram is the biggest U.S. base in Afghanistan. It was one of the most hips happenings during the war. But they were the U.S. military were pulling out resources from Bagram. Mm-hmm. So that's basically why this was all going on. So the crew had been on a flight from Chateau, France, to Camp Bastion, Afghanistan, and that's where the crew loaded 207,500 pounds of cargo. Woo. 
Lost a cargo. That's a the cargo, cargo was consisted of five mine-resistant ambush-protected vehicles. Of these vehicles, two were 12-ton MRAP all-terrain vehicles. So they were MTVs, and they look like that. We have a picture of that up there. Uh, Matt Vs, I think they were called. Yeah, Matt Vs. And three were 18-ton Cougars, which is the other one, and they're huge. And we have pictures on our website for your reference. Yes, they're very big. And bulky, uh, because they can resist mines. Yeah, that's, yeah, and ambushes. The MRAP vehicle, so the smaller of the vehicles, was positioned forward of the three cougars on the plane, and there was one behind the three cougars. So the three big ones were in the middle, a small one was in front, and a small one was behind. Okay, so those are the big ones? Yes. Okay. So they were supposed to take the cargo from Camp Bastion straight to Dubai, but they got rerouted via Bagram, and neither the Air Disasters episode or the actual report report said why they had to go back to Bagram, because it's actually farther away from Dubai than Camp Bastion was, but I, I'm not sure there wasn't a reason given for that. If you know the reason, let us know. That would be great. So we might not be allowed to know. Maybe not. Nope. Maybe that's why. <laughs> Probably not. Probably not because it's military cargo. So this was the first time the captain, first officer, and loadmaster had with heavy vehicle cargo like this. They had never flown a cargo flight with this amount of heavy equipment on board. It was the first time the airline had transported Cougars. Period. And the Cougars are the bigger ones, right there. So the plane sat for about an hour and a half to get refueled in Bagram, but did not take on any additional cargo there. While being parked, some of the crew talked about how some of the cargo had moved and some tie-down straps had become loose, and one strap had broken sometime during the flight from Camp Bastion. If I'm saying that wrong, I'm sorry. Bastion? 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 Gonna fix that? Oh, we'll get into it, man. <laughs> it's a I long feel like ride. it's important. Yeah, it's pretty important. So at 2.28 p.m., the first officer brought it to the captain's attention that one of the straps had broke. And they had discussed some sort of knot to put it back together. We won't get into the amount of no that that should not. We You shouldn't be knotting that back together, but Mm-mm. whatever. I think they actually ended up replacing the strap. They did. They did. So... Bad. They discussed how a bunch of, so to carry, to get these vehicles to stay, each one was on a pallet, and they discussed how there were a lot, a bunch of straps, that was the actual verbiage they used, a bunch of straps were in the front of the vehicles, strapping them down so that they wouldn't move forward, and there were a bunch of straps in the back of them as well, keeping them from going backward. Do you have those numbers? No. Okay. That was the actual verbiage from oh. the beginning of the report. <laughs> I mean, I can wait. Yeah. Okay. Wait, wait, wait. In, until we get to your part, and then we'll discuss the actual amount of strappage that was happening there. Is that a word? <laughs> sure. We'll, we'll make it a word. Strappage. <laughs> <laughs> we just create words on this podcast. Good over fine. there. My brain went a different way. <laughs> <laughs> this is a kid-friendly podcast. <laughs> that's why that's all I'm saying. The straps... That were supposed to keep the vehicles from moving backward, most of them had become loose. And so, there was talk about the straps being re-cinched, like they were re-tightened. With ratchets. With ratchets, so that... (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) They were re-tightened so that that wouldn't be a problem. 
or they thought it wouldn't be a problem. The captain had asked the loadmaster, who, by the way, from what I understand, the loadmaster was in charge of making sure the cargo was in the plane safely. That is correct. And being secured properly. That is correct. So the captain asked the loadmaster how far the vehicles had moved, and his reply was a couple of inches, which, by the way, for these giant 12-ton, 18-ton, a couple inches is, like, quite a lot of movement. So the captain stated he didn't like something that heavy moving during flight, and the loadmaster said something to the effect of... Everything moves unless it's strapped down. That's, like, what he said on the CVR. I think he also said, like, it's nylon. It's gonna stretch a little, or something like that. Something Mm -hmm. like that. At 3.15, the crew gets clearance to taxi to runway 3. And, by the way, even though this is pretty close to the end of our... I mean, who knows nowadays. I I don't keep track of a lot of the, the political stuff with war and whatnot. But we were lessening our military presence in Afghanistan, but the Taliban still targeted this Air Force base, or this military base, I don't don't know if it was Air Force or not, but they still targeted this military base because it was a big base. It was the biggest base in Afghanistan. Yep. So civilian pilots don't really want to stay in that situation very long because it's very possible it's a war zone yeah it's possible to get hit by bullets and things like that so being in a so, hurry is yeah they weren't really in a hurry they just didn't really want to be there right you don't want to wait you don't want to take long. up any extra time than you really need to right like you'd prefer to leave sooner rather than later but they were there like i said before for about an hour and a half so they get finally they get clearance to taxi to runway three They let, actually, a military transport plane go ahead of them because there was a lot of traffic in this airfield, apparently. So they let uh, the military transport plane take off before them, and then they go ahead and taxi to the end of the runway for takeoff. The crew had been working for about 20 hours, but because there was an augment first officer and an augment captain, they were able to go long distances in a long time because they were able to switch off between the four people flying the plane. Once in Dubai, everyone would get a rest break. So they really just wanted to get to Dubai so that they could rest. And then I'm assuming they'd get this, all this stuff back to the U.S. I'm not sure if they'd drop everything off in Dubai. I didn't say anything about that. But once they got to Dubai, they would get a rest break. At 3.25 p.m., they were cleared for takeoff. The first officer was the pilot flying. The captain was the pon- pilot monitoring. And this was their last leg, like I said before, of the flight to Dubai. The crew took off at a bagram. ATC personnel stated that the rotation of the plane seemed normal from the tower. A dashboard cam, however, from a ground vehicle caught the flight after its rotation, and the climb that it had then happened to have seemed really steep with a nose-high attitude before it reached its highest point, at which point the plane kind of suspends in midair, then rolls to the right and falls into a stall. It falls to the ground and then explodes. The plane struck ground about 590 feet northeast of the departure end of runway 3. There were small pieces of debris found on runway 3, including small pieces of airplane fuselage, a segment of hydraulic return tubing, a piece of E8 rack, which is the rack that holds the CVR and FDR into the plane, and part of the MATV, the big, the 12-ton. The MATV. Yeah, the MATV. That was in the, I'm assuming it was in the back of the plane. Yes. 
the antenna assembly was also found on the runway. All seven people perished, and it was horrible. This investigation was performed by the NTSB, actually, due to the accident taking place on what is technically U.S. soil, even though it's in the middle of a war zone in Afghanistan. As such, the team of five flew in and immediately donned on protective military gear, like bulletproof vests and helmets. This was not normal for them, needless to say. Also, in accordance with it being a military zone, the Taliban immediately claimed responsibility for the crash. Though it was immediately evident from the wreckage that this isn't what happened, since there was no evidence of explosives, missiles, or any other similar weapon that the Taliban would have used. They're just taking the credit? Yeah. Yep. That's... Pretty normal. I mean... At um, least they're willing. I guess. The NTSB had to work very closely with the military, since they're on their base, given their circumstances in any way. And the personnel on the base had actually already done a little bit of their work before the NTSB ever arrived. The black boxes were already located and sent back to Washington, D.C. in the States for analysis. So, in the meantime, investigators began going through the wreckage and the video evidence that was recovered. The two immediate thoughts, given the situation where it crashed immediately after takeoff and was a cargo plane, were either a problem with the control surfaces or a problem with the load. So there were actually a total of three videos, and the Air Disasters episode did not address the fact that there were two other videos entirely, but they were security cam footage from the the military base. They didn't have any... Nope. They wouldn't have been able to access it. The one that they did have was the one that I stated earlier from the ground vehicle that was nearby when the plane crashed. That's the one that they used. It was a a dash cam footage from a moving vehicle on a perimeter road outside of the base. From the videos, investigators were unable to discern any problem with the control surfaces directly, but noticed two things. Now we are going to watch this video, and we'll get back to you in just a second. Cue elevator music. And we're back. You'll notice that right after rotation, the motion of the plane seems very strange. That it seems like they couldn't put the nose down. As it turns out, it looked so odd to investigators that they decided something must have happened with the load on the plane. First question, was the load too much? Long story short, no. Their maximum takeoff weight was 807,000 pounds, and they were carrying 685,000 pounds, which is almost 200,000 pounds in the clear. Additionally, it was loaded such that the center of gravity was at 31.7%, which means that it was 31.7% of the plane's length back from the nose of the plane, which was well within the limits of the aircraft's takeoff capacity. Brief interlude. The black box results are back. Bad news and key clue. They stopped working three seconds after takeoff. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, but if you think about what was left on the runway. Yep. Makes sense. Makes a little bit of sense. So that helps to answer our next question in more ways than one. Next question. Did the load shift, as you may have already suspected from the conversation in the cockpit? As we discussed already, there was a conversation with the captain and the loadmaster about one strap failing. When loading cargo into a plane, they are usually tied down with tracks in the flooring. But this very special cargo couldn't be due to the sheer size of the vehicles. The way that loading is handled in this situation is by the book. Literally. The loadmaster consulted the National Airlines Cargo Operations Manual to calculate by weight how many straps were needed for each vehicle. The two MRAP all-terrain vehicles, or MATVs, 
Each weighed 12 metric tons and were calculated from the manual to require 24 straps each. The three cougars each weighed 18 metric tons and were calculated to need 26 straps each. Now, before it failed, the CVR did record the full conversation with the loadmaster prior to takeoff, where the crew expressed their concern about the shifting load, especially because it's not their job to know how the plane is supposed to be loaded securely. The loadmaster assured them that loads shift a little anyways because they are nylon straps. For the record, I would read you the CVR, but uh, there are so many expletives. I'm summarizing. <laughs> also, a uh, real quick note that I didn't mention earlier... The loadmaster had no previous experience with this amount of heavy cargo, especially heavy vehicle cargo. So he actually had like a a day of training and a training manual to go off of. He actually didn't know. And National Airlines didn't have this happen either. They hadn't done anything that had anything to do with heavy military grade vehicle cargo before. Nope. So really they were just like, Here's the training manager. Yeah, here's the training manual, and here's what should be okay. And yeah, there you go. That's all that really happened. Uh, Didn't have anyone who could be of any kind of assistance. If they did, they didn't have them train him or any anything along those lines. Awesome. You would think for chartering 747s that do cargo, they would be ready for something like this because it's one thing if you operate them as a cargo company. All the time. But National Airlines isn't just cargo. They're cargo and passenger. They have both. And they charter all of their airplanes. If the load did shift catastrophically, as we suspect, there would be evidence in the wreckage. The aft pressure bulkhead was found in pieces, but most of it was found. This is the part of the cargo hold at the back that keeps the cargo hold pressurized from the tail section of the plane, which isn't pressurized. And it's effectively the back wall right behind the last mat V. On the bulkhead, they found the clear imprint of a tire. So clear, in fact, that they could read the Goodyear logo on it from the spare tire of the Mat-V. We have a picture on our website for your reference. That's from a tire? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, gotcha. Like the tire that was, like, on the back of the vehicle? The The spare spare tire. Ah. So if you've ever seen a Jeep with a tire in the back, that's, like, what Mm -hmm. what it is. Yeah. This tire mark matched exactly the spare tire on the back of the Mat-V, which they found that particular vehicle, which was the only one of the MRAPs not in the fire zone of the wreckage. So, assumedly the only one that didn't burn. So that's lucky. What they didn't immediately find was the antenna box on the back of the Mat-V. Once they found it, though, on the runway, it had bright orange paint transfer on it. What do we know in the plane that is bright orange despite its name? The CVR. The black boxes. Yeah. They're actually orange. Yeah. They are bright orange. (laughs) It's so that if something were to happen, they're able to find them. Yep. The black boxes, which are mounted to that very bulkhead and would have been impacted by the vehicle that had shifted backward in flight, assumedly. So we know now that the Mat-V impacted the bulkhead. What kind of damage would that do? Let's circle back to that video for a second. I said they noticed two things. One being the visual cues of a load shift. What they also noticed was the landing gear, which is weird on its own. Landing gear get retracted on takeoff, and all of them at once. So why was it that the video recorded landing gear extended? And not just extended, but only some of them extended? Here, Emily, here is a diagram of the landing gear of a 747. Woo! There is nose gear, two main gear under the body, and then one under each wing. 
What's kind of hard to tell in the video, but investigators were able to discern, was that the wing landing gear were retracted, but the body gear and the nose gear were still extended. These three gear are controlled by the number one hydraulic system, which runs through the aft pressure bulkhead. What investigators also found on the runway, and was so hard to identify that they actually had to send it to Boeing to identify, was more hydraulic system wreckage, specifically from the number two hydraulic system, which runs the elevators in the tail, and also goes through the pressure bulkhead. That would explain why they couldn't get the nose down. Because elevators control pitch. And if you can't control elevators, you can't control pitch. Yeah, you wouldn't be able to get the nose down. Right. So the airplane's so climbing, but that's it. Which ones were still down in the video? The nose and the body. Okay, okay. Yeah. So these three are controlled by the number one hydraulic system, and then they found tubing from the number two hydraulic system. So okay. both systems failed. Awesome. They know that for a fact. And it makes sense, because they ran through the aft pressure bulkhead, or APB. So to summarize thus far, the Mat-V shifts backwards, hits the black boxes, and breaks through the bulkhead, taking out two hydraulic systems. That would totally cause the whole crash, right? No. No. Investigators flew back to DC, they were done at Bagram, and they plugged all of this data into a simulation to prove that this is what happened. But the center of gravity shift with the two failed hydraulic systems should have been recoverable. Actually in like six or five seconds, depending on the loading. They even tried it if all five vehicles shifted back, but the crew should have recovered in five seconds. So why didn't they? It turns out that the jack screw, a component of the tail that controls the horizontal stabilizers, was bent. And investigators had initially thought that it was just from impact. But when they reviewed pictures of it, they actually noticed that it was bent in the opposite way it would have from impact. It was bent as if it was impacted in flight by a large object. There were none of those. Uh, no, not at all. <laughs> if you need to know more about jack screw assemblies, check out Miranda Sode 1. We talk about jack screw assemblies. Which is on Patreon. Which is, is on Patreon. Shameless plug. Patreon. Shameless plug. Uh, but for real, like... That's what usually affects the elevators. It's the elevator trim. It's yep. very, it's a very hefty, giant screw. It's six feet long. It's, it's gigantic. It is a massive <laughs> screw with a, with a very large machine that literally just actuates that screw. It's a very large motor. Yep. Yeah. Hmm. So when they plugged in the condition of the compromised jack screw to the simulation, in addition to all the other problems, it most closely matched what occurred in the accident. So, we know what happened. But how? How did the MRAP come loose? Investigators interviewed the chief loadmaster and had him do the calculations as the loadmaster on hand would have done that day. He calculated with the following assumptions. 1.5 Gs of acceleration forward, 1.5 Gs aft, 1.5 Gs laterally, and 2.2 Gs vertically. He also assumed that each strap had an allowable load of 5,000 pounds. He then incorporated a safety factor with the straps of 75%. So that assumption changed the allowable load of each strap to 3,750 pounds. Additionally, he assumed an infinite number of tie-down points. Each mat view was 27,566 pounds. Using the manual, he calculated that 12 straps forward and 12 aft would have been sufficient. For each cougar, he would have, that would have been 13 straps forward and 13 straps aft. There are several problems with these calculations, and these were uncovered. It was actually came from a joint evaluation by Boeing and Telair, the company who designed the cargo handling system in this particular plane and in a lot of other planes. So, they good at this. It turns out that the cargo operating manual that the airline provided was not accounting for several factors. 
First, those straps had an allowable load, sure, but that doesn't work the way the manual depicted. Straps, or cables, as that is what they effectively are, have an allowable load along their length. The direction of the load can change. For example, if the cables are loaded parallel to the ground, they have their full effective load in the lateral direction. Yes, these are my pictures. No, I see what you mean by they came from your brain. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So if it's zero degrees parallel to the ground, all of their load is usable in the lateral direction and none in the vertical direction. In other words, they can resist 3,750 pounds laterally and zero pounds vertically. But the second you apply any angle to them, things change. The lateral allowable load becomes a function of the cosine of the angle to the ground, which in this case we shall call theta. The vertical allowable load is a function of the sine of theta. Basically, as you increase the angle the strap has with the ground, the less load it can hold in the lateral direction. In loading the vehicles, the loadmaster used all of the straps at a 30 degree angle for the most part. Which means it loses the amount of weight it can hold. Yep. So it reduces the amount of allowable lateral load to 86.6% of what it would have been at zero degrees. So about 3,247 pounds. So there's the first problem with his calculation. It did not account for strap angle, which the more of an angle you have, the less load you can put on it. Right. Right, because essentially they would have been strapped over the vehicles in some way. Yeah, so it would be accounting more for a vertical motion instead of forward and back and left and right. That's why the straps at the back were loose and one of them was broken. Because they didn't account for the amount of stress that the straps would have to withhold from the vehicles going forward or backward. Yeah, Right. right. And actually, so using this calculation, so say it was 45 degrees instead of 30 degrees, it would have been 70.7%, if that's right. I I feel like a beast. And if it was zero degrees, obviously it would be yeah. no load laterally. Yep. So were these calculations, like, for that, not in the manual, or would it have just nope. been Oh, read no, wait. Oh. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. <laughs> they were not in the manual at all. It did not have any function of the angle so of the So they strap. were, like... Just expecting people to, like, the whoever is in charge of it to just know that and know to apply those things. I mean, not that that's totally ridiculous. I mean, that's not that's not even what, they didn't expect you to do anything. They're like, if it can hold 5,000 pounds, it can hold 5,000 pounds. But in that, reality, but that's, that's not, not real life. That's not real, how that works. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's like, if you weren't to strap it actually from the top of the vehicle, which would be what you would probably do to keep it from moving. Oh, there's, I'll get into it. One point I do want to make is this is not the loadmaster's fault. He didn't know any better, and he was following a manual. Your manual is your guide. There's also, no, no, he yeah. had That's one day of training on this, by the way. That's what it said in the report. Yeah, he totally had not He had one day of training. He had never done anything like this before. So it had nothing to do with him and everything to do with what they were asked to do, basically. <laughs> yep. He was trying his darndest. Yes, he did the best he could with what he had. The next biggest problem that Boeing and Tel Air found, and was not in the Air Disasters episode, was that his allowable accelerations were way too low. You might recall I said 1.5 Gs in all directions and then 2.2 Gs vertically? Turns out this load should have been classified as tall, rigid cargo due to their height, meaning that's actually supposed to be 9 Gs in each direction, and that was per Boeing and Tel Air's weight and balance manuals. So... It's a bad time. Overall, just bad time. That, I think, was more of a contributing factor because 
if you tie something lower on something that's really tall, it has the opportunity to rotate more mm -hmm. so than anything else. And that's why they mandated that it be able to undergo such high levels of Gs as opposed to shorter cargo. And that just wasn't brought up at all in the Air Disasters episode. Which this was not. I mean, if you've ever seen these vehicles in real life, even if you could just imagine by the pictures that we we have on the website, they're pretty tall vehicles. And they had to be yeah. in order for them to be classified as anti-mine, anti-ambush vehicles. So it kind of surprises me that they didn't just assume that in the training that they gave him. But, I mean, he was working with what he had. And what he had wasn't great. Was the training given specifically because of this flight? Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. They didn't really give the pilots anything. <laughs> and they gave the loadmaster one day and a training man manual. So, but it wasn't like they had no idea what the cargo was going to be. No, they, they knew. Were they were like, oh, this is what you're doing. This is why we're giving you this. Yes. But the training was insufficient. The amount of information he was given was insufficient and did not match what the airplane manufacturer or the cargo system manufacturer said should be used. I am unsure if that has to do with nation airlines or, or national, sorry, national airlines, or if that was the Department of Defense. I'm not sure. Do you know? Uh, a lot of that probably has to do with some of both. This is classified as a special cargo load. In other words, this is completely not normal. Basically, the manual was designed around regular loads that they were dealing with. The, the, that was designed around carrying containers that are normally designed for being loaded into that airplane. And normal-sized cargo loads that aren't heavy. This was a special, very tall, very rigid cargo. This is very abnormally shaped, and therefore the manual wasn't designed for this. So some of this fell on National Airlines because they didn't know that there was a different set of operations for that versus their normal cargo loading. Though they had the means to know that. Yes. So ultimately, Boeing said that the Mat-Vs could have been tied down with 60 straps and all in certain directions, as in a picture that is on our website and looks kind of crazy and chaotic. And they shouldn't have loaded the Cougars at all, based on their calculations. No amount of straps would have been able to hold the Cougars in place because they were so heavy. Telair also did a calculation and was even more conservative and said that none of the MRAPs should have been loaded as there actually weren't enough tie-down points in the aircraft to handle the number of straps needed. So looking at Boeing's picture... There are 60 straps, and there, that means there's 60 tie-down spots all up and down the vehicle. And I don't think that was in the plane. And so I think they also assumed an infinite number of tie-down points, since they weren't the cargo handling system manufacturer. So they just made assumptions and said, here's what would have been needed. And the cargo manufacturer was like, no, really, you shouldn't have done this. And this was for the lighter of the vehicles. Like I said before, the MRAP vehicles... The two lighter ones were on either end of the Cougars, and the Cougars were the bigger ones, and they were all three in the middle, which means and the they Cougars... Weighed, they weighed 50% more. Yeah, so the Cougars would have been, either way, even if these were strapped down correctly, the Cougars would have moved, and probably moved the smaller ones yeah. anyway. So what these are, because of some further reading, what these are, all the tie-down points, these are literally the seat tracks... Because this was a modified 747, they had removed all the seats and switched it to a cargo version. 
these are literally the seat tracks that they were tying down to, where the oh, seats fantastic. would be. And so Boeing was assuming based on seat track positions. And that's okay, but I'll give you one ahead of time. One of the safety the safety enhancements that Boeing was in the process of doing at the time and was about halfway done, was expecting to be done with it two years after the accident, was, I'll read it out loud, specifically from the report, at the time of the report, Boeing had initiated enhancements to the Boeing 747-400-BCF and the other Boeing 747 freighter model weight and balance manuals to increase the number of seat tracks available for tie-downs and anticipated that the revisions would be completed by the end of summer 2015. Boeing increased the number of weight and balance training classes it offered beginning in fall of 2013 to meet the increased demand by operators. So tied with like making the changes, they wanted to make sure people knew. Breakity break. Breakity break. Break, break, break. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay. We back. We back. So I'll dive into what what they found, so their findings, obviously, and their recommendations, and some of the other safety things that came from this. And this was really important, but at the same time, they didn't blame National Airlines, believe it or not. They didn't know. So they didn't know. As I've know. said before, they had no idea that this They didn't really know. Thing. And specifically, what the NTSB believed, and you'll you'll catch on to this very quickly when I start reading these, is that... It's the FAA's fault. That's confusing in a situation involving this. You would think, okay, but loadmaster, not trained, airline, chartering this plane, Air Force. Why is the FAA involved? Well, the FAA still does all of the oversight and the training for these positions, like loadmaster. So, they blamed primarily the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration. So, jumping into the findings. The NTSB found that had the National Airlines Chief Loadmaster consulted the required manufacturer's weight and balance manuals, he could have determined that the intended load of five vehicles could not be properly secured in the airplane in accordance with the tall, rigid cargo safety requirements. At most, only one MATV vehicle could be transported. So, in other words, using if he had used the manufacturer's manual and not the airline's manual... They would have determined that this wasn't possible, based on those calculations. They found that although the flight crew members and the loadmaster were aware that the cargo moved during the, pre- the previous flight, they did not recognize that this indicated a serious problem with the cargo restraint methods. They found that the airplane's loss of pitch control was the result of the improper restraint of the rear MATV, which allowed it to move aft, through the aft pressure bulkhead and damage hydraulic systems number one and two and horizontal stabilizer drive mechanism components to the extent that it was not possible for the flight crew to regain pitch control of the airplane. All that going through the hydraulic systems and the jack screw. They found that there is no evidence that an explosive device or hostile acts were factors in the accident. Now, needless to say, they looked at that as a primary because the it was an Air Force base in 
technically in a war zone, and so they were still getting attacks. They believed it could have happened. I mean, this was a civilian airplane, so was it more likely than any other? Maybe, but they ruled it out. They found that although the loadmaster did not follow National Airlines procedures for securing the special cargo load, the procedures were deficient to the extent that, if followed, they could not have enabled him to properly load and restrain a special cargo load in accordance with the manufacturer and supplemental type certificate holder requirements. So, basically they're saying, not only did he not tie them down properly, but even if he had, it wouldn't have been enough. And that's a bit of what, about what we already discussed. But also, it wouldn't have been in compliance with the type certificate for the airplane. So, the airline was allowed to operate the airplane, but that means that they have to follow requirements for it, and they weren't. They found that although National Airlines provided the accident loadmaster with initial and recurrent training, this training was deficient to the extent that it could not have provided him the knowledge and skills necessary to properly load and restrain a special cargo load in accordance with the manufacturer's supplemental type surface holder. So saying a very similar thing, not only was the manual not worth it, but the training he received, obviously, wasn't enough. One day? Really? That ain't gonna do it. They found that the, the Federal Aviation Administration did not provide adequate oversight to ensure that the National Airlines Cargo Operations Manual reflected the correct information and guidance from the airplane and cargo handling system manufacturers that specified how to safely secure the cargo. There it is. They bring up the FAA. They say the FAA wasn't doing enough oversight of National Airlines cargo procedures, so they didn't catch that their manuals weren't following what the manufacturer had. So their manuals were deficient, and the FAA wasn't doing what they needed to do to catch it. They're supposed to audit and inspect their procedures. They didn't do that. They found that the lack of clear guidance regarding Federal Aviation Administration inspector responsibilities for the oversight of cargo handling personnel resulted in minimal oversight of these areas at National Airlines and enabled the persistence of critical safety deficiencies. So they were supposed to be doing these audits, and... They were supposed to be doing the oversight and checking National Airlines and their cargo, and they weren't doing that. And as a matter of fact, they were deferring it. And not only were they deferring it, but they were deferring it a lot. <laughs> so they did it many times. They found that when circumstances such as the FAA inspector travel restrictions or resource shortfalls result in the repeated deferral of required surveillance tasks, an alternative method or risk reduction could, be, could help mitigate risks until the surveillance tasks can be completed. So saying... If you can't go audit, because something's getting in the way, there should be something, some sort of procedures in place that temporarily put a hold on them doing anything that could be a safety risk, basically. So, carrying a special load, for example. They shouldn't be allowed to carry a special load if their procedures haven't been correctly looked at. Would the FAA have been involved at all in this special contract? They should have been. Okay. They should have had an inspector involved in the whole procedure carrying a special load. Did did they say why they didn't? They don't say specifically, but I would say since it says when circumstances such as the FAA inspector travel restrictions or resource shortfalls result. So that seems pointed, but... So basically they just didn't have a workaround to get the same thing done or stop basically. them from doing the danger. Yeah, basically. Doing the danger. Yep. So, that's it for findings, so probable cause. The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable cause of this accident was National Airlines' inadequate procedures for restraining special cargo loads, which resulted in the loadmaster's improper restraint of the cargo, 
which moved aft and damaged the hydraulic systems number one and two and the horizontal stabilizer drive mechanism components, rendering the airplane uncontrollable. Contributing to the accident was the Federal Aviation Administration's inadequate oversight of National Airlines' handling of special cargo loads. Yeah, that seems pretty uh, straightforward to me. Yep. So while they they put blame on the airline, they really think contributing to that is the FAA's lack of oversight. They believe the FAA had nothing to help National Airlines, and so they National Airlines really didn't even know that they weren't doing things properly. They just weren't trained to do it. And the FAA is supposed to be there to help them. They're a resource. So then the recommendations. The NTSB recommended a revised guidance material to specify that an operator should seek FAA-approved data for a, any planned method for restraining special cargo loads for which approved procedures do not already exist. So... Going through the FAA. Going through the FAA and saying, okay, we have a special load, and we don't know how this airplane will handle it. What's your guidance? What's How can you help us with this? And that there should be material, just published material to help with that, basically. They recommend creating a, cer- a certification for personnel responsible for loading, restraint, and documentation of special cargo loads on transport category aircraft, and ensuring that the certification includes procedures, training, and duty hour limits and rest requirements consistent with safety-sensitive certificated positions. Certificated. Yep. I like that word. I know. I was thinking, <laughs> we have certified and we have certificated. Why? I, I think that's come up before, actually. It has. I'm pretty sure it has. I always think it's I weird. think we questioned, like, is that a word? It is a word. You know and, what? It's a word. It comes up in these reports a lot, actually. If it's not a word, we'll make it a word. That is a word. They made it a word. <laughs> but in that one, basically, they're saying... Creating that certification for for load masters and getting them trained and then retraining and making sure that they are actually aware of all their responsibilities for safety for loading, restraint, and documentation of those special cargo loads, and that that also includes you know making sure that they are following normal safety guidelines, i.e., rest periods and our duty hour limitations. They recommended adding a special emphasis item to FAA Order 1800-560, literally the letter O, the National Flight Standards Work Program Guidelines, in other words, for inspectors of 121 operations, which is any transport, i.e. cargo or airline operations, to review their manuals to ensure that the procedures, documents, and support in the areas of cargo loading, cargo restraint, and methods for securing cargo are based on relevant FAA-approved data. This is all just a roundabout way to say that the airlines need to make sure that their manuals fall in line with FAA data and requirements. They recommended including specific guidance in the FAA Inspector Handbook that defines responsibilities for principal inspectors for the oversight of an operator's loading, restraint, and documentation for special cargo loads. So this one, really pointed, is saying that FAA inspectors, which most airlines have inspectors on site... The, the inspector needs to be really involved in a special cargo load. So making sure that that inspector's going over all the data a second time. So given the circumstances of it being at a military base in not the United States, mm-hmm. would they have had an inspector on hand? In theory, they brought all those crew along. Why couldn't they have just brought an inspector too? Okay, I guess that's true. They had two mechanics as well as... Two extra crew members and a loadmaster. I mean, that's fair. Well, yeah. Yep. Why wouldn't travel restrictions affect any of those other people? Yeah. Right. 
They probably yeah, just go in on the dang plane. They probably <laughs> didn't get to know too much about any of the like the oh, reasons. They don't do much. They didn't, they weren't even intending but, to be at Bagram. Yeah, but I mean, like I said, they were rerouted. I, I'm not even sure they knew why they were rerouted. Well, and to be honest, rerouted. I think it's amazing that the airplane already flew once. Yeah. I know. How did? <laughs> I think if they went straight to Dubai, which, by the way, if you've ever seen a map, which they did a map in the Air Disasters episode, they probably, if they went straight to Dubai, would have gotten to Dubai without any issue with the same issues they had when they had got to Bagram. But for whatever reason, they had to go to Bagram. And because they had to fly again, right? Yeah, that means they already went through a landing. I wonder if they had to climb out faster because it was a military base. And that's why. It didn't say anything about that in the report. I don't think so. I don't think it changed anything about their operations, to I be mean, honest. it should have been able to handle a steeper climb out regardless, but I was I wonder if that was what changed from the previous takeoff. I don't know. I don't I'm know. Not, I'm not sure, but I don't I don't think so. Because it was all the same like was... things. Yes. They were tied down tighter, technically. Yeah. I don't know. So they weren't supposed to do this, but they were going to do it twice. Yep. Yeah. And they didn't know they were going to do it The fact that it worked the first time is a miracle, and then they try to do a miracle twice, and if you know anything about miracles, that doesn't happen twice. Yeah, but how do you just use a different... Like, because the one thing said, you're, they shouldn't have done this at all. Do you just right. use a different type of plane? Is that the... Yes. Yeah, they have actual uh, military-grade planes to move ideally, these vehicles. Ideally, if the Air Force, which the Air Force, who knows why, but... The Air Force has C-5s and C-17s, which are intended to carry things like which, these vehicles. Fun right, fact, that I would think be a C-17 took right, off tap, right yeah. before they did. Right. I think that was... It was a military plane. It, it yeah. looked like a C-17 to me. Maybe it wasn't. I don't know. But they have planes. The military has planes to carry these vehicles, obviously, because oh, yeah. it got there somehow. It has to get back somehow, too. I don't know why they... Maybe they just didn't have enough, or... Or they were all... Doing yeah. other things. Well, I mean, when they're going in, when you're talking like, about... why not? Or it was cheaper to... Hmm. Well, when you start talking you about know. removing resources, that's probably why they chartered, because they have so much to stu- stuff to move in such a little amount of time that they just start chartering other airplanes. I mean, that was probably not the only airplane that was chartered in there. Oh, I'm well, sure. Well, because I... At other air bases and such, that they were moving things from these air bases, like Bastion, and they... Flew in there to just help get stuff out of there. Their other airplanes may have been already occupied, and so they just had more more airplanes come in. That's fair, because I would imagine you would slowly bring them in and yeah. then quickly move them back out. Yeah, usually. probably. Yep. So, three more recommendations. They recommended including specific guidance in the FAA Inspector Handbook that defines responsibilities of principal inspectors for the oversight of operators loading, restraint, and documentation of specific cargo loads. So in other words, not only having the inspector there, they're making sure that there's specific guidance in the inspector handbook from the FAA that defines their responsibilities in handling special cargo loads. They recommended providing initial and recurrent training for all principal inspectors who have oversight responsibilities for air air carrier cargo handling operations that specifically address special cargo loads. So... Training. Training's a big one. Training. Knowing what you're dealing with. Yep. Because they might not have known that that was tall, rigid cargo. Right. So hand-in-hand hand with the last finding goes the last recommendation. They recommended implementing temporary risk reduction methods any 
time that required surveillance items for 121 and 135 operators, so charter and air transport. Operators are deferred and established appropriate limitations on surveillance deferrals. So in other words, saying they're, if they're, you know, they need to have a limit on how many times they can defer, and if they are going to defer, what can be in place to make sure that the, the airline is still safe, the operations are still safe, while they're waiting for the FAA's oversight, their inspectors, to actually take a look at their operations. Makes sense. Yes. So hand-in-hand hand with that, there were a handful of safety items that were put into place while the investigation was going on as well as afterward, but they actually had a list of things that were put in place while the investigation was still happening. And they have a few different sections, but one of them was the, the FAA. Specifically, the FAA, immediately after the accident, established a team of inspectors to review weight and balance programs for national airlines and five other supplemental cargo operators. And these were to focus on procedures for cargo that's unable to be loaded normally. So they put into a place basically a team of inspectors that would literally be on hand specifically for this type of operation. So that's a lot more close look at this kind of operator and this kind of special cargo loading. They also established permanent cargo focus team in June of 2013 to provide a permanent technical support organization for FAA inspectors who oversee air cargo operations. So that's pretty important too. I mean, just having a team that's literally there to focus on helping with special cargo. And so the inspectors can reach and out to them anytime. Knowing what special cargo means. Right. Because maybe they didn't classify this as special cargo because they didn't know it would be special cargo. Well, there really wasn't any way for them to know that. Know that it was special cargo. Because <laughs> it was special cargo, but to them, they were kind of a small charter operator operating a very heavy airplane, and they were given a very heavy task, and they didn't really understand, they didn't really grasp what that meant. You know, this, well, yeah, this was a work, big airplane. Working for them, like, if you're being, you know, hired by the military, you're going to mm -hmm. expect to do things that aren't necessarily right. Right. within your realm. Well, the National right. Airlines is not actually a bad airline. I mean, they still operate today, and they still operate mostly, actually, uh, cargo, but also uh, passenger charter flights, and they do operate a lot of the times for the military. So, you know, they're they're pretty knowledgeable in some areas, and in some areas, let's be honest, okay, they were lacking here. And it wasn't entirely their fault. There wasn't really a whole lot of guidance from the FAA on how to handle special cargo. They were given a big airplane, they were operating a big airplane, and they didn't really know, you know, they were chartering the airplane, but they had the manual, and they thought, okay, most cargo is going to fall into this lump manual operations, and they followed that, but then suddenly they were given a really strange cargo load, a really heavy one, and they were like, well, the airplane can technically hold the weight, so we'll make it work. And they didn't know that that meant a lot of other things. Bum, bum, bum. Right. There was also some safety implementations put in place by National Airlines themselves. They reviewed and revised their cargo operations manual to incorporate restraint information from both Boeing and Telair. So obviously actually taking into account manufacturers. So that was good. The airline also created guidance for clearly identifying seat track usage in accordance with Boeing's weight and balance manual and marked the seat tracks on the main cargo deck with either red or green painted stripes to indicate whether an acceptable location to attach load-bearing straps was. National Airlines also created a special loads team to evaluate loads, including pre-planning, tie-downs, shoring, and special handling equipment. That seems very apt. Yeah. 
So they actually have a team that specializes in this now. I'm glad. Yeah. I think everybody's glad. Well, and why would you assume infinity points? I feel like it, it, if you have the plane, it's not that hard to figure out the actual number of points. Because it makes right. the calculation that much harder. It does. Boo-hoo! To do infinity or to do an actual number? To, to do, do an, an actual number. number. Because then you can't just assume you can tie down at any point. Again, Because uh, you have to then be like, oh, well, I have to go at this angle be- for these points because there isn't a thing here. Yeah, honestly, the fastest thing at that point would to be to plug it into a computer program, which costs the moolah. Not the moolah. <sighs> but going hand in hand with that, Boeing did the one I already told you. Boeing put in place that they were already in the works of enhancing the number of seat track positions that could be tie downs. So they were already working on that. And by they finished that in 2015. Which was two years after this, by right. the way. And then the cargo industry themselves. Following the accident, the National Air Carrier Association, or NACA, initiated safety actions intended to educate industry operators about the importance of proper restraint and aircraft limitation restri- uh, considerations for securing heavy vehicle special cargo loads. So they took the time to actually bring it to everybody's attention. Like, this happened, this incident happened... And here's what we learned from it. And we want to make sure that this doesn't happen again. So just educate. Literally training and educating the whole industry and saying, we don't want this kind of catastrophe to ever happen again. So we're going to fix it. Fix it. Maybe use the planes that are meant to transport these vehicles instead of using a 747. (laughs) Just a thought. That same team worked with the FAA and Boeing to develop uh, industry best pack best practices for special cargo loads as well. Like they probably could have carried the two MRAP vehicles, mm-hmm. and it, they'd have to you know use more been... than twenty four straps. But they could have used the straps for the Cougars on those, and they probably would have been fine. But because Maybe. they had the three Cougars on top of the two MRAPs, and none of them had the proper amount Matt of strappage, is. that all of them are MRAPs. Well, yeah, Matt, V's. Matt V's and Cougars, having all of them on the plane at the same time, just it just didn't... Even though the airplane could handle the weight, theoretically, they couldn't handle the... Secure. They couldn't secure the loads, given what the airplane had. Yeah. That's, that's the gist of this. So that's why it was recommended that they just shouldn't carry them. Yeah, not no plane, no. <laughs> just there are don't. other airplanes for that. Just, just don't do it. <laughs> they should have given them other cargo to carry and those weight on those. I, yeah, I feel like they would have had plenty of other cargo that to be like, could have yeah, put this on your plane. Probably. Yeah. probably something that got carried on another airplane should have been swapped. Yeah, yeah, probably, you know. But now this but we'll never know. wouldn't happen again, most likely. You know, because they know now. <laughs> yeah. Probably one should not use a converted 747 to transport these heavy vehicles. And two, there is a actual equation that you have to keep in mind and the amount of weight and all that stuff. You ha- you have to account for... Angles. The angle of the strap. Yeah. And I w- actually, in like reading the report and everything, I was kind of really excited because this came up in a very basic engineering course for me. It's actually the course that I failed. Um, <laughs> but she still knows this. I but re- you told me. Well, you had to retake it. You so. told me all about it, though. Yeah, so when I took statics, which is also called analytical mechanics one, 
Um, was a very hard class at the time. Looking back is not that difficult, especially given that I just explained it to you. But I, I, ju I was just really excited to be able to share that little bit of knowledge of my career and have it make sense to people who might care that aren't engineers. The knowledge. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel validated. No, it was good. I yeah. liked that. There was a lot of good things about this episode, actually. I think this really, there were so many safety things like that the industry reacted right away, which is one that I think sometimes with other incidents, it doesn't really happen that way. Yeah, yeah but this but, is military. Well, this was military, but also this was cargo and charter operations and the FAA. And there's, it kind of shows because this one's one of the more, most recent ones we've ever done. Yeah. It shows that now when things like this happen, like the industry, they're all over it right away. They just want to fix the problem. Yeah. And that... I think is really important. And I think that this is a really good e example of that happening and working. Absolutely. That was National Airways. Airways? Airlines. 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 I keep saying Airways. I wanted <laughs> Airways so bad. Say it again. National Airlines 102, Flight 102. Thanks for continuing to listen. We've had quite a bit of people still listening. Yeah. And we appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's so much appreciated. Check out our Patreon. There's more content. So much more content. And Miranda Soats and... You actually hear us be funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're pretty funny. Thanks. You're biased. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Because you keep trying to make me one of you. You are one of one us. One of us. You listen to one this podcast, don't you? <laughs> you'll, you'll get there. Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> Either way, thank you for listening. We have a new country. Thank you. We have several. Yeah. Uh, we have three. Greenland now. And Bahrain. And Bahrain. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. To so those few we know people in Greenland. I know, know. I was going to say, that's pretty cool because there's not it's a lot of amazing. people there. Yeah. We know it's been a hard time lately for a lot of people. So thank you for listening, even though maybe you don't have the time because I know I don't. <laughs> it's fair. So. I'm still dedicated to my podcasts. Yeah. I'm I don't listen up. to them as much as I should. Anyway. Anyway. Thank you for continuing to listen. Again, if you want more content, if you're bored, check out our Patreon. And also you get bumped up in the suggestion list if you're on Patreon. So we just got one. Yeah. Yep. So. Thank you, Mike, for being cool and so awesome. that one will come up soon-ish, maybe. We'll let you know. <laughs> <laughs> and remember, have a great week, and we will talk to you next week. Keep, Keep your airspeed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Also, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you're using to listen. If you want to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi, and our social media is coordinated by Sonora. Catch you next time.